From Built It Productions and Luminary Media, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Sarah Rob O'Hagan and Gatorade. When I first got there, you know, my boss was just like, you know, just throw some new logos on the bottles, it's going to be all good. But what we didn't realize was that, you know, the fundamentals under the demand for the business were already going from flat to negative, and then the Great Recession was about to happen, and so it was like stepping onto the Titanic. <laughs> How Sarah Rob O'Hagan's resilience in the face of failure, again and again, gave her the confidence to take big risks and turn around a failing brand. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So if you happen to scroll through Facebook or Instagram today, you'd most likely see a combination of friends, maybe influencers, living their best possible lives in an infinite highlight reel of stylized filters. You'd see glamorous celebrities offering their dose of pep and optimism, and you would definitely come across that Rolodex of inspirational quotes from leaders. But what you probably won't find are many stories of leadership that focus on failure and vulnerability, because it's actually not that common for leaders, especially business leaders, to talk about this stuff. Unless you're talking about Sarah Rob O'Hagan, because Sarah is brutally honest about all the times she totally messed up, like the time she got fired from Virgin, or when she became too self-conscious at her next job and got laid off. But all of those missteps eventually made Sarah a much, much better leader, one who would go on to become an executive at legendary brands like Nike and Gatorade and who was the brain behind some of the most memorable and original marketing campaigns of the past 20 years. Campaigns that, as you will find out, were pretty bold and risky. And Sarah's combination of self-awareness, nerve, and grit is pretty inspiring. Sarah grew up in New Zealand, and in college, she studied marketing and international business. Interestingly enough, I credit my big sister for the fact that I did that um, because I went into college having absolutely no idea what I wanted to do and having been told by all the career counsellors that I was too dumb to be a vet, which is what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> 
not smart enough to do medicine or the sciences. And I was kind of guiding myself towards a sort of generic degree. And, and my older sister, who was 10 years older, was like, no, you don't understand, particularly as a woman, you have to come up with something that will give you a vocation and business would be a good place to start. Like I had no idea. She just kind of picked the courses for me and away I went. <laughs> so what did you do after you finished college? So after I finished college, I had this giant dream that I would work for Air New Zealand, which is the national carrier of the country. And my main kind of career goal was to fly out of the country. That was about hmm. it. And not because I don't adore New Zealand, which I do, but I just had such sort of aspirations to see the bigger world and sort of have a career um, on a bigger stage, I guess. Yeah. So I um, applied for a number of jobs, like in those days, I think it's similar today in college where recruiters come to campus and you kind of all, all of you like a herd apply for their entry level roles. And funnily enough, I... Um, applied for in New Zealand and completely screwed up the um, test they made us take. And so I got what we fondly called a PFO letter in those days. I think mm. you can figure out what that means. <laughs> in other words, we don't want to hire you. And I did get offered a job at Mobile Oil, which I just wanted to blow my brains out at that prospect. So in the end, I actually decided there was no way I was going to take no for an answer. So I just went back to the recruiting lady at the airline and I said, listen, I've just... I had a really bad day and I'm absolutely convinced that I'm the right person for this job. And I put this huge proposal together as to why. And this poor woman must have thought, like, what has hit me? But um, she ended up getting me 30 minutes with the hiring manager, wow. which is extraordinary. And by some hook or by crook, I convinced him. And it's very funny because there was six um, internship roles and I was the seventh that they made an extra role for. So you start, uh, I guess you start out in like marketing for Air New Zealand? I did. So I was um, a graduate trainee and I was so lucky. Like to this day, I look back and think how incredibly lucky I was because I did three months in each department of the airline as a intern, you know, so everything from working out at the airports and checking people in to uh, route management, load factors, all that sort of stuff, and then um, ultimately advertising and marketing. So I was really lucky to be at that junior level, just seeing sort of all of these sides of a operating business and obviously a very complex operating business um, up close, yeah. And you were doing this presumably in New Zealand? Yes, I was. I was in Auckland, New Zealand, yeah. But still with this idea of kind of getting out, getting out into the world. Absolutely, yeah. And and then um, eventually a role opened up in North America and based in Los Angeles and – or Los Angeles, as the Kiwis would say. And I um, was like, this is it. It has to happen. Because honestly, at that time, I'm so dating myself, but I was watching tons of Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I just want to live on the beach. That looks really cool. And um, so I applied for this particular role, which was like, uh, I think it was an advertising and promotions manager. At Air New Zealand. At Air New Zealand, based in LA. So it was like a inter-company transfer. And to be quite honest, I was only 21, 22 at the time. And way over my skis. I mean, I never should have gotten the role, but to this day, I'm just so grateful to the guy who was running um, in New Zealand up in North America, Norm Thompson is his name, 
because he decided to take a bet on me, this crazy, huh. overambitious kid. And so that's how it all kind of started. So you moved to L.A. And, and mm-hmm. what, what were you, I mean, what was your role, like, to kind of come up with marketing campaigns and ad campaigns for New Zealand and, and for the airline? Yeah, so we would do, it, we didn't have budgets to do sort of advertising. It was a lot more... Um, of sort of marketing within the distribution systems that already existed with the travel agents and the tourism offices. And it's funny when I look back because our single biggest um, consumer challenge that we had to overcome (laughs) was the fact that New Zealand is too far away from America. So we would start like literally coming up with ways to draw the map so it looked closer (laughs) to try and sell Americans on going down under. (laughs) (laughs) You would try anything in those days. But um, at the time I was at uh, in the airline, we also started to operate service directly to Sydney, Australia, which was a huge um, shift for the company. So definitely a big learning to undertake opening a new market like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, early on in, in, in a career, right, it's like that you don't quite understand or realize it in real time, but it's like being in the sandbox. Oh, it's yeah. like sort of, right, just trying to do whatever you can and and not really fully realizing how that would help you in the future, but just just kind of, you know, trying things out and tr- trying to sort of, I guess, pretend like you, you know what you're doing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's funny you say sandbox because I, um, I had one of the most, what at the time was painful but unbelievable positive career experiences in that... The company was going through some downsizing and in like a year into my time in L.A., basically it was a huge um, layoff of people and all of the people in my department that I was working for got let go from the company. And I'm 22 and most of these people were in their sort of, you know, mid-40s, maybe 50s and were Mm. like parents to me. (laughs) And I couldn't, I was so upset, I couldn't get my head around how this could happen and it was really quite devastating. But what it led to was I was the last man standing. And so I suddenly had to take on all these roles that I had absolutely no idea how to do. But to your point about the sandbox, you kind of figure out how to build the castle, don't you? I mean, you, you have no choice if if there's no one else around to ask. And, you know, I look back and just think it, it was a good experience, A, because it gave me the chance to figure stuff out and learn. But secondly, to understand at a young age that companies go through good and bad times, you know, it's yeah. not always, you know, great company outings and everyone partying and having a good time. And and sometimes going through the rough times is actually where you learn the most and probably build the, the most in terms of your resilience. So you are in LA, you find yourself now taking on all these new responsibilities after layoffs, but were you, did you always sort of have your eye on the next thing? Yeah, I mean, I definitely would say I was always very ambitious. And I I ended up working at the airline for six years. But I had come to Los Angeles, or to America, I should say, with this dream that one day I would work for both Virgin and Nike. That was kind of what I had in my head. Wow. (laughs) As simple as that. Because when I was in college studying marketing... You know, that was the era of Michael Jordan. That was the era of Richard Branson. It was kind of like there was the era of what I would now call, quote unquote, belief brands starting to emerge and experiential brands. And I just intellectually fell in love with both of them. 
not only because they what they were doing as brands, but one is obviously very anti-establishment, the other is all about, you know, just do it and performance and things that I personally really connected to. And so I just had sort of obsessively followed both brands and just was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so I guess, well, eventually that, that would happen. You did go work for Virgin. How did you how did you get that job? Yeah, so that was one of those things where you know, I kept thinking, surely, you know, a job opportunity will open up and I can go for it. So I had done some research and I knew who the CMO at Virgin Atlantic was. And then I saw I, this brochure came through the mail into my desk at Air New Zealand and it was an invitation to a marketing conference and it listed some of the attendees and her name was on there. <laughs> And the conference took place on a ship. I'm not making this up. That like meant that basically, if I could get to the, go to this conference, I would be in an enclosed space with this poor woman for three days. So there was no way she wasn't going to meet me. <laughs> and so I um, basically, you know, took a couple of days off work. I funded it myself to go attend this conference because I was just absolutely determined. If I meet this woman, we're going to hit it off, and surely she's going to hire me. And so, um, to my great surprise, it, my little plan actually worked. And we sort of met socially, as you do at these kinds of things. And then, um, you know, a few months later, when a job opened up in her department, she knew of me. And so she, you know, I had already said to her, I'd really love to work for Virgin. So it sort of, the, the pieces fell into place. So you were hired. This is in 1998, Virgin. How, how old were you at the time? I think I was 26. When I moved to New wow. York, yeah, I was young. <laughs> when I think about it. And um, what 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 were you? What did you do there? So I move across the country and you know max out every single credit card. Like the day I showed up to the office for my first day of work, I can still remember I only had eight dollars of cash, enough money to get on the train to get there. Like I was so <laughs> maxed out and. I show up to the office and um, I remember walking in the door and sort of going up to reception saying, hi, my name's Sarah Buxton, which it was in those days, and I'm here for this to meet with this lady who's hired me. And she literally looks up at me and goes, well, she doesn't work here anymore. Hmm. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like I have just moved my entire life across the country for this job. And apparently the woman who hired me, it turned out, had been fired the week prior. Wow. <laughs> and I remember I have never been so scared in my life. I like, you know, I think I retreated into the bathroom and just cried and then pulled myself together and came out. And I just said to the woman, well, you know, surely there's someone in HR I can meet with. And so I end up, you know, I had taken the job of, I think, partnership manager or something. And I end up sort of sitting in a in a cube with no boss. And like the whole place was a little bit of disarray because she'd just been let go and there didn't appear to be a marketing plan and there didn't appear to be anyone in charge. And I remember literally thinking, well, I'm going to get fired because she hired me and there's nothing, you know, no one really has any buy-in to me even being here. So within a couple of weeks, I, um, I remember it was just screaming at me what needed to be done in terms of we needed a marketing plan, we needed budgets, we needed an org structure. Like, And I, I knew what to do because of what had just happened to me back in my last job when everyone got let go. Mm. 
And so I just, one night, I remember Friday night sitting in my apartment in Manhattan and just like literally starting to just type it all up on my computer. I worked the entire weekend and just pulled this whole plan together. And then I do remember Monday morning going, now what? You know, what do I do with it? And so I printed it all out on beautiful paper at Kinko's in those days and put it in an envelope and I slipped it under the president's door. <laughs> and and this, was a, this, was like a, a, this was a fully formed marketing plan? Yep. Yep. I still even have it. Like when I look back, it was so detailed and it was so like literally from top to bottom, here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to measure our success. And here's how I would organize it. And I think at the time, like, because in my head, I was like, I have to create value here. Otherwise, I'm going to get fired. So at least... I'll put it under the president's door and he's either going to go, you obnoxious little shit, you deserve to be fired anyway. (laughs) Or he's going to go, there's some value here. You know what needs to be done and I'm going to support you in that. And I was so lucky in that he obviously, you know, really liked the plan and I ended up getting promoted to be director of marketing. Wow. And so, yeah, it was like, the honestly, it was probably the single biggest breakthrough of my career because I just stepped up and took it, you know? I'm assuming that there must have been some people who were kind of irritated by this new, you know, brash, um, this new (laughs) brash employee who's like going over everyone's heads directly to the president with a marketing campaign. Did you even, like, were you even conscious of like ruffling feathers or or did you, like, did you even know you, because I have to assume you did, right? Yes, yes, 100%. Did you even, were you just oblivious to that, to the office politics? I think I was. I think I was really oblivious to it. And I think I was much more focused on, I think I was so driven by, I can't lose my job. And I've got to, as quickly as I can, prove that I have a value to be here. Yeah. That it didn't even occur to me that this was going to ruffle a lot of feathers. (laughs) Um, And it did, without a doubt. But I also would say that I... I don't think I was mature enough to have even known that 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 would ruffle feathers. And in a way, I'm glad I wasn't because I think that naivete gave me the the ballsiness to go for it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you get this position and the um, kind of the buy-in from from the senior leadership to implement this plan. And uh, what what was the the big thing, the the first big thing you, you started to do? So... One of the great, I do believe in all great careers, is a lot of luck that contributes. (laughs) And one of those great moments for me was it turned out that the um, ad agency that we were using in those days, um, the creative director of said ad agency was, would you believe it or not, a Kiwi. And so (laughs) we happened to meet at the first meeting and Kiwis being Kiwis, we like have a, I don't know if it's a secret language. I don't know what it is, but we just immediately connected. He is to this day, his name's Mark Darcy. He's now at Facebook. He is one of the most extraordinary creative talents on this planet. And he, I think when you sort of put together my structured thinking, because I'd already put the plans together and very clear briefs for the agency and his brilliant brain, um, he was able to quickly go, there's a huge idea here. And, um, and that was at the time we really needed to sort of relaunch the brand in the US and the um, Austin Powers movie was coming mm-hmm. out and it was the perfect like foil, if you will, to help tell the story of Virgin because the attitude was just so spot mm-hmm. on. And so um, 
you know, he came up with this amazing creative campaign that I was like, that is it. And so I was like, I am going to like go balls to the wall to make sure we can sell this into the bosses because it's too good not to do. This was a campaign to use the Austin Powers kind of branding and aura to advertise Virgin or to rebrand Virgin? Yeah. So long story short, we actually ended up rebranding the airline Virgin Shaglantic. And it was a huge tie in with the movie and um and we saw we, you know, created these fantastic billboards. I still think they're one of the greatest campaigns I've ever been a part of with you know, um, all, it was like Austin Powers, you know, sitting on a stride at Virgin Atlantic 747 and, you know, non-smoking flights unless I'm on board, baby, you know. <laughs> um, all that kind of stuff. So it was very tongue-in-cheek, very fun. And um, we obviously did a collaboration with New Line Cinema, which was behind the movie, and we, you know, ended up getting Richard Branson and Mike Myers. And, I mean, it was it was a over-the-top. What did that... What did that do? I mean, did it was there like a clear and measurable like boost to Virgin's business? Oh yes, like the um, the brand awareness measures that we did were like went up off the charts. And I actually remember this is so funny. This is going back to the earliest days of the internet. But we did this online ticket giveaway that was tied into the whole thing and like we managed to I remember for its time it was like the single biggest visited web you know before the Victoria's Secret um, fashion shows blew up the internet it was kind of like one of those sized um, initiatives like it was for the amount of budget we actually spent on the campaign it was extraordinary the impact that it had because I think it was just like smack in the center of what was culturally happening at that moment with certainly with the movie. So you um, you spearhead this campaign. You're like in your late 20s. You're mm-hmm. riding high. I have to assume that like you're on the fast track to like the, the C-suite at Virgin. Yeah, I mean, I literally, I still cannot believe that this little Kiwi from, you know, tiny sheep-infested island in the South Pacific was partying with Richard Branson at the Cannes Film Festival when I was 26. I was like, what is happening? And, oh, it was crazy. And um, I remember shortly after that, I actually was um, offered a role at Virgin Megastores, which was a sister company of Virgin. Yeah. And, and for- they, they said, hey, you did a great job yeah. here. Do you want to go to Virgin Megastores and like help help them out? Yeah. And I, for me, because I'd always wanted to get out of airlines eventually. Like I knew I wanted to work for Virgin, but I was like, I had this Nike dream. So I was like, somehow I've got to get myself beyond airlines. And I think as a lot of, you know, young people would know today, when you're starting your career, often recruiters sort of keep you in the same box and it can be quite hard to get out of the box you're in. And so when that opportunity came up, I'm like, this is perfect because it's retail, it's music, it's entertainment, it's different. And I'm going to you know, go into a different space and learn a ton more. Hmm. And, um, you know, I was beyond full of myself and super excited because I'm like, I can do no wrong. I've been partying with Richard. <laughs> you know, I did this amazing I campaign. Yeah, here I come. Yeah. And Virgin Megastores, this is like in, in the late 90s. I mean, big deal, right? Like these were huge record stores in cities around the world. 
Yeah, like they were. Yeah. Which was all great, except for the fact that I completely overlooked the small fact that I was joining the company just after Napster had come along. <laughs> so <laughs> the entire industry and the company was in a major, major phase of disruption and really struggling with comp sales and you know, everything that you could imagine happens when you suddenly start giving away music for free. So it was, you know, on, on the surface, it looked like the best job opportunity ever. And the minute I walk in the door, I was like, oh, this is this is not what I thought it was going to be. And this is going to be hard. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. I knew nothing. I knew nothing about music, nothing about the labels, the distribution, nothing about retail, any kind of retail, like nothing. I mean, it could not be more different to the airline industry. I mean, airlines is ultimately, you know, service and hospitality. Retail is a very tactical day in, day out game. And God, it was, I was just so out over my skis the minute I started. But you did know marketing, and you yes. just come off this hugely successful marketing campaign. So, so what did you do when you got to to Virgin Megastores? Yes, I did, and and I also 
um, had a specific expertise actually in loyalty marketing from the beginning of my career. And one of the things that was quite interesting was that because the music industry was being disrupted at Virgin, we were trying to figure out how are we going to continue to build the business outside bricks and mortar. And so we created some new businesses that were digital in nature. Um, one was called Radio Free Virgin. One was um, like a, a, in a, in a funny way, the beginnings of what would one day become a Spotify, if you will, like streaming kind of music businesses. And so one of the things I could see how to do was to create a, a very sort of clear strategic plan about how you would build loyalty and sort of um, recommendations, if you will, to consumers based on their tastes and all that sort of stuff. Like when I look back, it was actually way ahead of its time. It was like the right idea that we're now doing, but way ahead of what the um, sort of technology of the era actually enabled. So I think I kind of was playing to my great strategic and innovative strengths, and those truly were not needed for the moment that the company was in, which was how the hell do we deal with the daily comp store declines? So you start to figure out a marketing campaign and, and then I guess implement it. And what happens at, at Virgin Megastores? So, I mean, it's funny. I don't necessarily remember the exact business results, but I do know that the company continued to struggle and continued to, it was like, it was like a classic, um, you've brought in a new CEO, a new bunch of leaders, and it was a just team of individuals and absolutely nobody was kind of working together around one concise vision. And as a result, there was a lot of bitching and moaning, a lot of kind of just negativity. The business wasn't doing well. And quite frankly, I was the center of the negativity. I was like that friggin' rabble rouser, like that negative rogue force, because I was like, what do you mean? This is not like what I'm used to from the airline. You know, I was hmm. just a, ugh, I, like I'm mortified at the kind of person I was in those days. Um and I think as a result, you know, in environments like that, everybody is not their best self, I would say. But I think yeah. I I take a lot of responsibility for I would consider myself probably one of the worst. And then basically um, a year after I got there, I come into the office and my um, boss calls me in to uh, his office and his boss is sitting there and HR is sitting there. And I'm like, oh, shit, this doesn't look good. <laughs> and... Hmm. It was quite uh, an extraordinary moment because, yes, they fired me. It wasn't like a layoff. It was like one person. You are being fired, just you. And they gave me, my severance was one week of pay and a one-way ticket back to New Zealand. Um, it was like, you're so bad, we don't want you in the company or our country. Like, that's how awful it was. It was... Basically, I think I lost my visa. I lost my green card application. I mean, wow. it was just like a devastating implosion for me. It was mortifying. Like, I can't even... And to have to walk out, you know, and go pick up your stuff and do the march of shame through the middle of the cubes where everyone's like, you know, poking up like little prairie dogs over their <laughs> walls going, who are you? What's happened? It was so humiliating. I can't even begin to describe what was the what was the reason they gave you you know what's funny is they didn't give me a reason and for a long time I would say the first few months 
in particular, I was so mortified and angry and and I think it's human nature. You try and sort of point the fingers outwards, you know, so in my mind, they hadn't given me a reason. I was like, well, they were assholes and they didn't know what they were doing. But then it's funny how, you know, I would tell that story to people and then the look in their eyes would be like, hmm. And I could tell that other people didn't believe me because I didn't believe myself. And it wasn't until probably a good year or two later of a lot of, you know, soul searching that I realized that the reason was me. I deserved it. Like the, the company was actually in decline. So there was probably financial reasons I needed to get rid of my level of role, but I wasn't adding any value in and I was being very disruptive. And so I, I don't think I needed them to give me a reason once I finally figured it out for myself. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 pretty remarkable to, you know, on the one hand, to to be able to reflect on your own failings now and even in the years afterward. But there's also, in some ways, this incredible fortune that you had to experience that you you were able to experience that at a pretty young age that you were able to experience yes. that kind of failure and rejection in a way that that you could recover from it. Yeah. I I totally agree, and I, and I think, you know, I I I think the, this whole topic of sort of failure and building resilience is one of my my most sort of favorite lessons that I learned in my entire career. Because when you have survived something like such a big failure as that at such an early age, it does build this very deep reservoir of just gut resilience and. And sort of confidence that you're going to be okay, so you can afford to take the risks a little bit. And I always look back now and go, had that whole chapter not happened at Virgin, I don't think I ever could have reached my full potential because I needed hmm. it to sort of, A, to, to teach me to, you know, be tough and resilient and fight back. You know, like I had three months to figure out how not to get deported. So that's a good challenge. <laughs> but more importantly, it's self-awareness, you know, like, my God, from that day onwards, I hope most of my colleagues would say, I just had such a big gut punch of humble pie that I just knew going on for every step forward that I had to be really careful and sort of keep my ego in check. When we come back in just a moment, how Sarah Rob O'Hagan went from rock bottom to working for her dream company. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the year 2000, and Sarah Rob O'Hagan was just fired from Virgin. And with only a few months left on her visa, the clock was ticking to find somewhere to work or go home back to New Zealand. So, you know, I made finding a job my job. Like, I, I remember I was just like every hour of every day going to try and uh, spend time with people who I had previously worked with. And... That's one of the great lessons I think you also learn is if you have been a good, you know, colleague and person to work with. I mean, I wasn't all terrible, but people will will be there to help you in a time of need. And it was actually one of my former colleagues from Virgin from the Austin Powers campaign 
who knew someone who was hiring a role. It's just how it always happens. And so I end up uh, taking this job as the VP of marketing at Atari, which is a video game publisher, <laughs> which honestly, desperate times call for desperate measures. You know what? They were going to give me a visa. They were going to give me a job. And by the way, it was a giant promotion. Um, but I completely overlooked the fact that I absolutely hate video games. Always have done. <laughs> have no interest. Don't understand them. Don't really understand why people play them. You know, perfect oh fit. Perfect, perfect fit. fit. <laughs> perfect. So you As get into Atari, um, secretly yeah. hating video games, not really understanding them. But but I have to assume that you thought, all right, I'm going to go into this with with two feet. I'm going to dive in here. Yes. And uh, and immerse myself in this culture. Did you start to like learn about video games and play them? Yes, a bit. But what I would say is, you know, I I did jump in boots and all. I was like, I've got to make this work. Um, but I was also deep down inside severely underconfident because uh. of what had just happened. And so, you know, I think every time I would try and take a step towards the gaming side of the office, you know, and feel that notion of who the hell is the woman with the Kiwi accent, go away, I would go away, you know, because <laughs> I was just scared, I think. And I mean, long story short, this one didn't end well either. Like two years later, I ended up getting laid off, which I consider a big progress step upwards from individually being fired. So it wasn't, I mean, clearly it was not the right fit. It was almost like a way station for you to kind of figure mm -hmm. out the next thing. That's a nice way of putting it, Guy. A way station. I like that. But I mean, did you sort of see it that way? Because it was a job and you could stay in the U.S. and uh, kind of figure out figure you it know, out from there. I, I, in a way, I wished I had seen it that way because I actually, instead, I was putting so much pressure on myself because of the firing that I've, this has to work and I've got to prove that I've still got it, you know? <laughs> And therefore, and it was, I will also say, because it was a company that was acquiring other companies, it was a very, very stressed corporate culture, as is often the case. And so it was not an easy place for an underconfident person to be. And um, and so I was so determined to to sort of prove that I could, I had it still, you know, when I say had it, like had the capability that I used to demonstrate. Um and I think as a result, I probably made it even worse for myself because I was just trying so hard with my kind of tools of the game that just weren't right for what this was. So that job lasts little less than two years, I guess. Two years. <laughs> and um, you're once again out of a job, still in, in L.A.? Yep. Mm -hmm. And so, so once again, did finding a job become your full-time job? Yeah. Now, the good news is this, this second time I actually got a nice, healthy severance, nothing like the good old severance to tide you over. So at least I, and the other thing is I now had, it's a long story, but sponsored my own visa so I could stay in the country and get a job anywhere because I had a special kind of visa that enabled me to do that. So this time I was like, I, I was very anxious to get a job, but I, I was like, I'm not going to make a mistake of something that is not right for me. I'm really going to push to get the right thing. And then, you know, along comes an opportunity at Nike, which is where I'd always dreamed of working. So I was like, I am going to do everything I can to land this job. You know, I was like, it became my 
obsession. It was nine months of interviewing for it because I was like, I cannot not get this job. <laughs> so, okay, so so eventually you did uh, get hired by Nike in, in 2002. And, and did you move to Portland? So actually my first um, couple years at Nike were based in L.A. Because um, in those days they were building... Um, sort of really building up their regional presence in key cities in America, LA, New York, Chicago. Um, And so, and they had basically brought me in to lead this team, to build a team from scratch and sort of create, we were sort of almost trying to create a little entrepreneurial business of its own away from the corporate mothership, which when I look back, honestly, it was the best like role I possibly could have stepped into because by the way, I took a giant pay cut from what I'd been on at Atari, a giant title cut. I went from having like a team of 35 to a team of three. You know, like everything on paper looked like the worst career move ever, but it enabled me to get my confidence back. Like it enabled me to start in this company that I revered so much. Like I was I was sat there every day going, I cannot believe that they hired me because they seem to have overlooked the fact that my career has been a bit of a shit show you know yeah and I I was just like every day this is Nike like this is the best this is the A team like I've got to figure out how to fit in here and because I was in this regional role just to step away from the heat of you know the the corporate mothership I think it just gave me that opportunity to learn the ropes and build relationships and sort of get my 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 confidence going. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is one of those those really interesting um, experiences that I think a lot of people don't realize is super important. Which is sometimes to move forward, you kind of have to take a step or two back. And it sounds yeah. like that's what happened when you got to Nike. You kind of had to definitely right. You kind of had to just accept a lesser role, lesser title, less mm-hmm. power and influence. But but that was what you had to do if you were going to move forward. Absolutely. And and like technically what I was doing in the job I could do with my eyes shut, but it you're so right. Like it taking those steps back to sort of refine and get clear on how I did what I did because I I also think by this stage I was in my early 30s and I think for many executives, it's a really tough transition going from being the individual contributor to the person who leads through others. And that is what I had clearly been screwing up at in the last two jobs. And so to sort of take that step back and realize that actually it's not about my ideas anymore. It's about how I can energize and um, lead others to be, you know, to contribute and do it, do it all themselves like to do that on a small scale and to refine your way of doing it was like the perfect thing I needed to build those foundations to be able to go and do it on a much bigger scale later. And I think it's so foundational to to very senior leadership. You had um, obviously really good experiences at Virgin, and but but then a, a failure, and and then Atari. I'm sure you had some you know moments so that were useful and where you learned things, but also some uh, somewhat of a failure. It sounds like Nike was really it was a success. It was it yes. was sort of a an, an opportunity for you to kind of really take all the lessons you learned in those two previous jobs and create a successful career. Yes, for sure. I mean, 
Like, I still think it's remarkable that the same human that was just such a disaster could then step into a new environment and just take off. And I really did. I was really, like, from the minute I got there, first of all, the environment was loaded with people that are like me. You know, we're all, like, sports junkies who uh-huh. are very competitive and like to play on teams. And so all of that felt right. So I, I felt at home very quickly. And secondly, I think I was just able to, because I so deeply understood the consumer and had the same empathy and passion for the brand, I was able very quickly to be able to make good instinctual decisions that were on point that got me some real runs on the board. And once you have runs on the board, then your confidence comes. And once you have confidence, you have momentum. Once you have momentum, you know. Yeah. And I, I literally, I think it was the end of my, maybe it was even my first year there when I won some like crazy just do it award for like six people out of the whole US region and I was like holy shit <laughs> if they could have seen me two years ago hmm. <laughs> what were some of the campaigns that you were most proud of that you were part of at Nike during that time so when when I first started within actually eight weeks of starting we were launching a giant uh, shoe called the Shocks NZ and we were asked in the regions, so we're this brand new team, like, you guys have to come out with a way to trial gazillions of shoes in the next six weeks. <laughs> and my team and I came up with this amazing running event called the Run Hit Wonder, which was basically a 10K running event. And we hired all these amazing One Hit Wonder bands from the 80s, like Flock of Seagulls. <laughs> And each one, it was so cool, each one could only play their one hit over and over and over again so that every runner would get the perfect one hit soundtrack. It was so good. (laughs) And uh, that happened like within six weeks of me getting it because it was like all hands to the pump. This was the biggest thing. And we pulled it off by some miracle. And so that's something to this day I think all of our team that did it is super proud of. Was there – I mean that that's a super like super creative idea. Just just like the Virgin Shaglantic, you know, was, was super creative. Was it – I mean did, did you find that when you were there that like that creative – creativity just fed off other people's creativity? It was like what, what enabled that creativity? Was there just – you know, was there room to fail? Was there room to experiment? Was there – was it just a, a – positive environment because creativity doesn't happen easily. It takes it takes work and it takes an environment yeah. to enable it. That's a good point. I mean, I do think Nike, at least in the era that I was there, it, it is one of the most extraordinary environments for teaching creativity. Like, I mean, creativity was expected. And um, I'm one of these people who, if you do the test online, I'm exactly in the center of left brain and right brain. And so I am very structured and processed wise in terms of my thinking with a very strong creative bent. So I'm quite, I think I I knew how to create a sort of structured process to take people down a path to get to creative ideas as opposed to just sort of random brainstorming that can you know, go nowhere. And and that's something I think over the years that I've really honed is like how do you go down a path of sort of exploration with a group of people that allows their brain to get to the creativity without forcing it to get there before it's ready. And I mean, is it, I mean, sometimes it just, 
it's just a combination of personalities, right? It's just the right people in the right room. But sometimes yeah. it's about saying to people, just just go and try something out or think of something or be radical in the way you th- you think of something. And if it doesn't work, we'll, we'll tell you. Or, or, you know, if it's too weird, we won't do it. But don't be afraid to at least propose it. Was that was that allowed? Oh, was that yeah. I mean, I, that was definitely allowed. But I think the beauty of a company like Nike, or at least a brand like Nike, is that you have it's so very clear the structure of the filters that you use. And I, I remember one of the greatest designers from Nike giving me this insight. And I was like, he's so right. Is like to get really good creativity, the 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 narrower the guardrails that you're trying to think in, the better. Because if you give too wide of an expanse. You, could, you know, you're all over the place. Whereas if you make it a very narrow problem to solve, often the, the really sharp, better ideas will come. And so I think for me, it was like, how do you, how do you sort of really, really refine the problem that you're trying to solve and sort of the sharpness of the consumer insights that you're bouncing off of? And I think... I think one of the great things that Nike certainly taught me, I'm sure taught a lot of us, was the core of the company it is built on innovation and innovation for Nike is about making an athlete faster it's a very pure problem to solve and so I think a lot of companies today or you know often when I'm speaking to young entrepreneurs it's like well my idea is the uber of this or the this of this and it's like but are you actually solving a consumer problem now at Nike we always knew exactly who the consumer was and we knew exactly what we were trying to do for them. It was very clear to see. And so I think that made the creative process much easier. Hmm. So you spend about five and a half years at Nike. Um, and then you leave. Why? Mm. <laughs> oh, it was the biggest decision of my career. Um, so I, by this stage, I'm now back in LA and I'm running a big region of the US for Nike. So I was a general manager by then. And I was, I was having conversations about going back to Portland for my second, what we call tour of duty, (laughs) um, to sort of take a global category management job. And, um, for a number of reasons, and this often happens, like, you know, the HR process was moving slowly I was getting very impatient because by then I was like, you know, I want to try something new. I want to keep growing. And one day out of the blue, I happened to take the recruiter call when a call came in saying that, you know, they were looking for a new chief marketing officer for Gatorade and Gatorade was needing a reinvention. I didn't know it was a turnaround, Hmm. but it was kind of a brand reinvention and they just Hmm. need someone who's got all these great sort of creative ideas and athletic background and, you know, I'm like listening to the call going, everything is speaking to me right now. And yeah. and I'll tell you the other thing. I don't know if other people ever feel like this when they take jobs, but as I got through the interview process, it dawned on me several times that if I don't take this job, one of my colleagues at Nike is going to get it. <laughs> yeah. That's a very honest. Yes. I mean, it's a sort of honest motivation for many people, but people, most people, just don't talk about it. But that's true, right? Yes. I mean, they were going after you, which must have been incredibly flattering, uh, and and it would be the chief marketing officer of a big company, right? Yeah. It was a big job. It was a big job. 
So, you know, I will say in the end, it was, I was very drawn to this. It was clearly a huge opportunity. It was a springboard for my career opportunity. Now, that said, I loved Nike. And I, uh, having had this terrible experience in my 20s, now I'm like thriving and I'm on the leadership track. And it was a very scary decision to leave because I just kept thinking, God, if this is, if this implodes, what will I have done? You know, I will have given up yeah. what I dreamed of since I was 20. <laughs> so it was not an easy decision, that's for sure. So you decide to take the job mm. and you move to Chicago. That's right. And you became the, the chief marketing officer. I did. So I started out as the chief marketing officer and and when I first got there, you know, my boss, who was this amazing, crazy Italian, Massimo D'Amore, he was, you know, listen, it's all about just like, you know, put some great new logos out there because at the time Gatorade looked very dated, like, you know, something from the 60s. You know, just throw some new logos on the bottles, it's going to be all good, you know, was kind of what what we had all led ourselves to believe. But what we didn't realise was that... Um, you know, the business, the sort of fundamentals under the demand for the business were already going from flat to negative. And then the Great Recession huh. was about to happen. And so it was like stepping onto the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, what was going on? I mean, because I mean, Gatorade is like everywhere. You go to the supermarket or, or like on the coolers at every major sporting event. I mean, it's literally everywhere. So like, what was going on? Why why was Gatorade in trouble at that moment? So what had happened, I mean, I think a lot of businesses went through this in the late, you know, 2005, 6, 7 era, was if you think about it, the economy was just on fire, falsely propped up by what was going on. And Gatorade had been acquired by Pepsi back in sort of 2002. So it had gone from being this very um, sort of this beverage with really strong efficacy for the athletic occasion being used by athletes across sports with a high price point, a high margin to once PepsiCo acquired it, not surprisingly, what would you do if you're Pepsi? You put it in this giant distribution system and suddenly it's in, you know, 24 packs in Walmart and buy it and get a packet of chips for free, you know? And so what had happened is it had become so overdistributed and the price you know had started to come down and so in a great economy you know people were just drinking a Gatorade on the couch with a pizza and it was just <laughs> I mean it, I do remember there was this fun fact that early on when we looked up on social media you know what was the most common hashtag associated with Gatorade and it was hangover cure I mean, huh. it had got a long way from its you know, really strong athletic roots because the business, as is always the way, they have to grow a certain percentage a year. So you just keep growing, adding distribution, adding, you know, more varieties, more flavors, more multi-packs so that you can, you know. And so whilst it had been a great tailwind, that eventually becomes a headwind, particularly when a recession hits, you know. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you get there at the start of the what would be the biggest financial crisis in you know, modern history. Um, and what did you – what was your idea? How are you going to turn it around? So what we all thought we would do is literally like rebrand it. So if you recall the old Gatorade logo and we shifted to this giant G on the front of the bottles and we did right. a really right. used big... To just say, it used to say Gatorade and there was like a lightning bolt. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then we moved to G and we had this big teaser campaign, what's G? And we did a sort of Super Bowl ad, the whole nine in early 2009, and we were kind of like, we're just going to rebrand it and make it cool and hip for the kids again, you know? And that's going to, and that is going to kind of modernize it because it is a nice mm-hmm. logo, the G. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it was like, let's just rebrand it, new logo, G, and, uh, and that should kind of give it a, a bit of a kick. Yeah. That, that was the sort of conventional wisdom. And I think that was all we could do in a short period of time. I mean, there was a lot of pressure to move as fast as we could to to sort of change the trajectory on the on the trend on the business. So so we launched that. This is early 2009 and I should also mention that the week we like the first G bottles came off the line was the same week I gave birth to my third child. So I'm like, great, I'm on maternity leave. All's good. It's all set up to roll. <laughs> and then literally within five or six days of these products hitting the shelves, it goes from decline to 10% to 20%, like massive decline. Wow. And, massive know, 20% <laughs> decline in and sales. This is, off a, this is off a $5 billion business, you know, so you can do the math. It was were, huge. You were on maternity leave and you're just watching the, mm-hmm. the, the graph mm-hmm. just like arrow down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Were you freaking out? Oh, yeah. Like within... I mean, I, I can remember I was on, like, I was working back to more than 40 hours a week worth of conference calls and everything within a week of having the baby because it was, everyone was freaking out. It was like, what the hell has happened? And 
you know, and, and all you can imagine, like the bottles are on the shelves at retail and it's a mix of the old and the new and people couldn't find their products. So obviously all the retailers are like it's this stupid rebranding that caused it. Like it was such a kind of cause and effect look to everybody from the from Wall Street analysts to the retailers. Yet my team and I, who were the marketers behind it, we were closely monitoring social media and, you know, the sort of core target that we were going after. And we could tell that the kids were really connecting with this thing. And so it was this very difficult period where everybody in the company, everybody except for my little team and my boss were kind of like, this is a disaster and we need to reverse the decision. Like there was several... Were you? <laughs> were you? Of, I mean, this is a right. This is a. This is a, like there's shareholders and there's stakeholders and uh, were, were you? Were you feeling pressure within the company? Like, hey, you guys screwed this up. Oh yeah, yes. I mean, I remember there's a Wall Street Journal article somewhere along the way in this journey that basically the headline was Pepsi sweats over Gatorade. It may as well have said Sarah Robo Hagen fucked up Gatorade. Yeah. <laughs> It was bad. And and yet I will, you know, to this day give so much, like, credit to my boss, Massimo, for continuing to believe in us and give us the air cover to keep going. Because in the end, you know, he really was the one that helped convince the powers that be that we've made this change and we've got to make it work. Because if we go backwards, that's going to make it worse. And... I think we also were quickly building a case of, we did have the data that showed that it wasn't as cause and effect as people thought it was, and actually that the declines were coming from just this natural um, shift in a tough recessionary environment where people couldn't afford Gatorade. They were getting water out of the tap for free, you know? Yeah. Were, were people, were you ever named in any of those articles? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I... I remember the whole time thinking, God, everyone back at Nike is just like, you loser. <laughs> like, what's happened to your career? <laughs> oh, my God. That's the nature of us competitive, sporty people. But, I mean, it was a big risk. And then you kind of just hit this really unlucky patch in the economy where it was probably – their sales are probably going to go down anyway. There may have been some brand confusion. There were a couple of factors. But, like, how long did that – did those declines last? Was it was it weeks? Was it months? Oh, it was <laughs> – it was a year and a half. And so, Ooh. yeah. So that whole year – because I actually think that the real moral and lesson of the story is, like, by the time we got into the summer months, you know – Things had calmed down a little bit internally, but it was clear that nothing was going to change these like baseline trends on the business. And more importantly, I think what certainly Massimo and myself, my, my boss and I really believed was that if you're going to turn a business around, changing its clothing, its, its logo is, isn't going to do it. You need to bring meaningful innovation and that will give the consumer a real reason to come back into the franchise. And so I remember he sat me down one day and said, listen, I, I'm going to give you the air cover this year. I'm going to take a lot of bullets for you because this is not going to fix itself this year but you have to come up with an innovation launch for next year that is going to turn this thing around. <laughs> Otherwise, we're both going to lose our jobs, you know. And so 
I think it was one of those greatest partnerships I've ever had because we, you know, he definitely kept the sort of, you know, scary naysayers away so that my team and I could really hunker down and think about the long term and come up with a meaningful way to really figure out how to turn the business. Hmm. So what what was it? What was that way? What was it going to be? Yeah, so in the end, like, we, we spent a lot of months going round in very pointless circles trying to come up with a way to, quote-unquote, advantage Gatorade. Like, and by the way, you know, if there was a miraculous potion that could make an athlete jump higher or run faster, I think we would have known by now. <laughs> you know, it was like the science team kept saying, yeah, no, like, there isn't anything. And then... Finally, because we spent a ton of time doing ethnographic work with consumers and just really sort of going deep on what are the need states of athletes, we actually quickly found that, well, the core consumer of this product still loves it, still consumes it in the same proportion that they used to, but they have more needs than just hydration. They they need energy before they go on the field. They need recovery, like protein recovery when they finish. And so... Before long, we started seeing this vision around this idea we we ended up calling the G-Series, which was products for before, during, and after exercise. And we basically yeah, yeah created the suite of products that we then brought to market um, the following March. This was the idea that you would drink this before your workout, yep. this during your workout, and this for recovery. Yep, exactly. Was, was there nervousness about, about trying that out? Yes, because... So so from a math standpoint, like how we sold it in both internally and to the retailers was essentially, you know, if you think about Powerade and Gatorade, they were battling over a call it $6 billion piece of the pie. Wow. Yet wow. when we did this need state work, we realized that the size of before, during and after athletic activity is like 70 billion. So we're like, if wow. we can get a slice of that action, there's real growth to be had in those hills, you know? And so that was how we we built the business case. But naturally, all of the retailers are like, but I just want my Gatorade to grow. I don't care. I just want my Gatorade to grow because that's what I'm used to, you know. And they kept yeah. saying, why aren't you doing more for the base product? And we kept saying, trust us, it's like all of the the, the boats are going to be lifted by this the ocean coming up with this wow. big new framing. And it means we can frame the category differently um, and pull ourselves away from the cheap kind of competitors. And the thing that to this day blows me away is like we, we launched in, I want to say March or April of 2010, the speed at which the turnaround started to happen still blows my mind because... How it, fast was it? It was literally within about a week of the campaign wow. and the products getting out. Suddenly, you see it just go to flat, then a little bit of growth, and then day in, day out, it was growing. And we wow. would just look at the numbers every day going, it's a miracle, you know. And I think it was such a lesson to me that because we had bought meaningful innovation and given the consumer a reason to wake up and look at the category again, they all started buying base Gatorade again, you know? Yeah. So you were, I guess, eventually promoted to be the president mm-hmm. of Gatorade. Yes. That's a, I mean, a big, big job. Yes. I mean, was that right after the, the success of this campaign? Yeah, it was. So, you know, it was pretty soon after that. And then by this stage, we needed 
to, we knew we needed to sort of reorganize Gatorade globally because it exists in multiple countries and we had shifted the strategy so dramatically in the US that we needed to do the same around the world. So there'd never been a global president role before. And um, and I think by then, you know, I had always had aspirations to do more than marketing. You know, I'd always wanted to be more of a general management kind of role. And so... No, I was. It was a huge, huge step up. There's no question. Like it was a very scary, intimidating role to take on. But I also think by then I had, thank God, sort of built the the uh, support internally because we had had such a success. And the 18 months leading up to the turnaround, you know, there had been a lot of naysayers, and so therefore when our team proved that we were actually on the right track. I think from that point forward, people were like, we're not going to mess with them. They know what they're doing. <laughs> All right. You are now dead center in the at the top of the C-suite. I mean, you know, in this huge multi-billion dollar business um, where the buck really now stops with you and I guess the CEO. Um, was that – was I mean – did everything you do up to that point lead you to be able to say, okay, I, I got this. I can deal with the stress. Yes, definitely. I mean, it was stressful. Like even even after the business turned, it never stopped being stressful because I think, you know, when you've been through such a difficult, difficult turnaround as that, you know, you lie awake with one eye open every night worrying that it's going to go back down again because <laughs> you know it's 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 a it's a really difficult thing to turn such a big declining business and so it was incredibly stressful but i i do think that for me particularly because i'd had these early career mistakes i was like god this could be another massive implosion and it's going to be really public you know yeah but i think you also know that you will survive. And when you've had tough experiences, like I kind of knew that no matter what, I've got my family and we're survivors and I'll figure this out. And so that gives you that sort of calm just to keep going. S someone once once told me, um, uh, a leader that I worked for, that when you are at the top of an organization, in some ways you are always walking down a short plank that, <laughs> you know, Eventually, you're going to be held accountable for something catastrophic, mm. um, and that, in in a sense, once you're at the top of an organization, you have to think about the next move. Like, where's the next lily pad I'm going to? Do you think there's something to that? I've never heard it said that way, but as you say it, yes, I think that's really right, and I think there's something to be said for just years under your belt, where you realize that. Business is cyclical. People's careers are cyclical. And that, you know, the person who looks like they're crushing it today is going to have their version of things going down. Like the business that's just been valued at a billion dollars is going to have its tough time. You know, there is always going to be the downs that follow the ups. And therefore, you know, you, yes, I think you always have to be aware of you know, picking your lily pads, so, so to speak, um, to, to, to position yourself in the right place. That said, I would not advocate trying to build a career of just jumping from good opportunity to good opportunity because I don't mm. think that you would, I don't think that you would ever 
sort of learn the, the, the really needed skills of empathetic leadership if you haven't been through some tough times. And yeah. I mean, even for me, not surprisingly, I've had to lay off a lot of people in my career through various companies, downturns, whatever. And I can't tell you what a difference it makes to have been through that personally, because I remember how unbelievably humiliating it was the first time it happened to me. And I always thought, if I have to do this to someone else, I am going to go out of my way to make this as humane as an experience as I can, because hmm. I've been there. <laughs> when you think about your your leadership skills and abilities, do you think that you were born with those skills, or do you think that you learned how to become a leader? What an interesting question. Um, hmm. I mean, I think think I was somewhat born. I was bossy from a very <laughs> young age, so I think you could call that leadership on some level. But I do think the vast majority was was I learned, and I learned from modeling off other extraordinary leaders. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that I do feel that is the best way to learn. It's like when you work for someone, like I in the very early in my career, actually when I first moved here to America, Norm, who was the boss of the region, I would run through walls for him. I mean, he was such a brilliant leader. He inspired us. He pushed us. And so I got to see up close, like the kind of leader I wanted to be. And I think that is how you learn. And then you sort of experiment by trying and failing and trying um, to, to put it to practice yourself. I love this idea of – I mean, I, I think that there is a a kind of a fetish, fetishization of of entrepreneurship, not not in, in, in a bad way, just in, in the sense that that's the only way you can be creative. But in fact, a lot of entrepreneurial thinking happens internally. It happens within companies, right? Like coming up with Shag Atlantic or the G campaign or – you know the one hit wonder the run hit wonder camping these these are these are entrepreneurial ideas these or building different kinds of Gatorade right from beginning middle and end i mean that is still entrepreneurial it seems like it seems to me that there isn't enough sort of appreciation for that kind of thinking and those kinds of creative outlets either i'm so glad you said that because i i could not agree more like I, I love this whole entrepreneurial moment we're in for the fact that it is disrupting and creating so much new, like just better consumer services and all of the above is amazing, right? And I think it's forcing big companies to really up their game and that is important too. But I do think as someone, if I was starting my career today, like the the experience that you get from being in a big company, just the structure, the learning how to think, learning how to solve difficult problems, because I would say that, you know, turning around a giant, you know, business with massive amounts of baggage in terms of its systems, its technologies, or working in highly regulated environments is really challenging compared to just starting something from scratch where you have none of that baggage. They're both experiences that I think people can benefit from. And you have to be very creative and very disruptive in those big environments to be successful. And I think the other thing that people 
sometimes overlook is you can in big environments it's up to you like you don't just have to be a cog in the wheel you can or if you step up and stand out and figure out how to create value in your own terms i think you can use those environments to really learn and create pretty spectacular output that's sarah rob o'hagan Sarah left Gatorade in 2012. Today, she runs leadership workshops for her organization called Extreme U. And a couple years ago, she wrote a book based on the title of that organization. It's called Extreme U, Step Up, Stand Out, Kick Ass, Repeat. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our first episode this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Built It Productions and Luminary Media. Hold up. 